0: You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into our very first episode Today, we'll be diving into some history and cultural context, specifically around Black hair, told by one of the leading scholars in this space.
1: We become enlightened when we share information because intersectionality is real. Because when you bring forward the minds and brains of people of diverse backgrounds, you become better, faster problem solvers.
0: That was Lori Tharps, our featured guest for today. She's a talented author and storyteller whose work focuses on race, identity, diversity, and culture. She's perhaps best known for the book she co-authored with Ayanna Bird called Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. And today on the podcast, she'll be sharing some of her personal history and experience around black hair and what led her to this work. She also has a lot of wisdom for us about the way forward for the beauty justice movement. And as a note before I pass it to Dr. James Todd, we'll have an extended version of this episode available on our lab's website, which is linked in the episode bio. There you can hear more about Lori's journey to this field and some little-known history about
2: diversity in America. Now let's get the conversation started. All right. So thank you again, uh, Lori, for coming and joining us today. Really excited to um, have you here, and I would love for you to take a moment out to to self-introduce and let folks know, I mean, so many of us already know you and your work, but would love to hear how you describe yourself in your own words. Sure, well, thank you for having me. It's very much a
1: pleasure, my pleasure to be here. Um, So my name is Lori Tharps, and I identify as a storyteller, an author, an educator, and, I guess you could say I I consider myself like a creative activist because everything that I do with my work um, is done in the spirit of helping the world do better with issues of race and identity and um, justice around the identity of our fellow humans.
2: I, I love that. Can you kind of tell us about how you and Ayana Bird decided to write Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America? Like what led to that? And it was written 20 years ago, but how, how has that journey as far as kind of watching how that book kind of plays out, um, you know, over and over again over the last couple of decades?
1: Hair Story actually started out as my master's thesis in um, graduate school and Really, we were, you know, I went to Columbia Journalism School, and our thesis was supposed to be a long form article that we would research and write over the course of a year. And, you know, the only requirement was that it was a topic that we knew would keep us interested for an entire year. I mean, that was the warning, you know, make sure you pick something that you really want to delve into. And honestly, to this day, I don't know what made me choose black hair because in reality i have like six other topics that my um advisor approved but i was such a flake i would come up with this idea write up a proposal get the approval and then be like yeah i don't really want to do that and by the time i came up with the idea of black hair my advisor was ready to kill me because i had <laughs> changed my mind so many times um and i think she was a little irritated and she looked at my topic of black hair and thought, this is not worthy of an, a thesis. This is maybe a personal essay, but I don't see how this is, gonna, you're going to fail because um, your thesis was pretty much the majority of your grade and it was a pass fail. So there wasn't any leeway. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room. All I know is that I knew I wanted to write about culture and race And I knew I wanted to have some personal connection for me so that I would be interested. And I thought about, I almost feel like this was a divine notion because there was nothing significant going on with me and my hair when I was a 26-year-old grad student in New York City. I had my hair relaxed like I had my whole entire life. I, did, I never had any major problems with my hair in the sense that I kept it straight and in a ponytail. That was it. It never was an issue, it was never a statement piece. It was more like, look hair, you stay on my head, I'm good. That was it. And so there were a few incidents that were interesting. Like I was an exchange student in Morocco when I was 17 and my host family in my host family, I had eight sisters and they all spoke Arabic. I don't speak Arabic. And so it was a very quiet and lonely (laughs) experience at first. And then one night, all of the sisters and a few female cousins came over and locked themselves in a room. And I didn't know what was going on because I never knew what was going on because I didn't speak Arabic, but, there was something happening and i peeked in the room and they were all giving each other relaxers and it was like hair night at the house when i was like i know what's going on like i get this this is not so foreign that i cannot understand what's happening it was revlon it was the same stuff we used at home i mean it was so familiar and it was literally a turning point for me where I had found myself so disconnected from the family and we didn't have any way to communicate. After hair night, it was like all bets were off. We were all like best friends. And it was like, we breached this wall, this divide of culture through our hair. So that experience really sat with me for, it was like 10 years later that I'm in grad school Um, And as well as a couple of negative experiences, just where people made fun of me or, you know, the way I felt when I had gotten my hair cut really short when I was younger um, and people thought I was a boy and things like that, where I realized that even though I, for the most part, ignored my hair and just kept it kind of out of the way and in the background, it still managed to make a significant impact in my life. And I think that feeling was what made me think, Hmm. what if I research black hair? And again, to me, it feels like it had to have been divine intervention because I had never read a book about black hair. I had never seen hair discussed in any kind of academic way or historical way, mostly because those books did not exist before hair story existed. So I was, I was setting myself up really for a journalistic assignment, I wasn't planning on writing a book, Turned the thesis in, my advisor invited me to her home for tea. She was British. So having me come over for tea was a big thing. And the fact that she invited me to her home and not her office was also a big thing. And what she wanted to do was apologize to me for disparaging my idea in the beginning, And to tell me how wonderful this thesis was, that she had photocopied it and sent it to a friend who was in the process of adopting a child, a black child. And then she told me this had to be turned into a book.
2: And I was like, wow,
1: wow, wow. I mean, I was just amazed. Um, But I was also like overwhelmed because I was about to graduate. I needed a job. I had just thrown away. I had quit a very good job in PR to go to journalism school. So The idea of writing a book was like telling somebody they should go ride an elephant in Central Park. I was like, "Uh, sounds fun, but wouldn't even know where to begin. So thanks. (laughs) But then I met Ayana Bird when we were both working at Vibe Magazine like a year and a half later. And she had also written her undergraduate thesis on the kind of sociological implications of black hair and beauty ideals for women. And the person who hired us both Said to us one night, it was like three o'clock in the morning, we were there doing um, fact checking an issue. And he wandered over and said, Do you guys know that you both have some weird fascination with black hair? You've both like written papers about it or something. And so we started talking, and we found out that both of us had been encouraged to write a book about the work we had done. Mm -hmm. And from there, we decided, Hey, even though we had never written a book before, neither one of us had even written like a cover story or a long feature story and had it published. We said, well, let's write this book then. And we kind of combined our two um, research background, our research papers, and wrote uh, a proposal, got an agent, and, and that's how Hair Story was born. And surprisingly, it sold rather quickly considering in the year, the book came out in 2001, so it was like 2000 that it sold. um, It wasn't like there was a big clamor, a big call for books about black hair. And ironically, our agent had told us that we weren't the first person, we weren't the first people to propose a book about black hair, we were just the first persons to finish the proposal. Like people had had this idea before, it just had never been seen through to completion. So, That was in 2001 and it was we were really proud of the book but we say that the book was like 10 years before its time before america was ready to really engage with this conversation about hair and what's more in the early 2000s like in 2004 2005 the green movement kind of started which launched the natural hair movement which was huge and also, when we finished writing Hair Story, the internet was just beginning to become a thing, which sounds crazy to us now. But we didn't have the internet to do any research, to talk to people via email. We did everything like the old-fashioned way for a Hair Story. So in 2013, we decided that we needed to update the book because we needed to incorporate the significance of both the internet, which changed the way. Black women could get information as well as products for their hair and created an entire new um, industry of Black hair um, YouTube video stars, if you will, um, and Black hair bloggers, but also the natural hair movement, which was, again, it's like a revolution in Black hair culture that impacted mainstream society, impacted the beauty industry massively, impacted Um, the cosmetic industry impacted the um, big box store economy massively. So, So in 2014, the updated version came out where we addressed those two issues. And honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if we do a third edition, because now the conversation, it's not that it has shifted, but the fact that the Crown Act has passed in many states Outlawing hair discrimination, which kind of undergirds the entirety of the history of black hair in America, it it almost seems that there should be a new chapter added that just that talks about um, legislation and hair discrimination. Um, especially now, you know, as I'm out of the United States, but you know, the, the United Kingdom also has a similar law that they have passed that's out that bans um, hair discrimination um, or hair-based discrimination, I should say. So, so this journey has been incredible. Um, and I always say that again, if you had told 26 year old me that this book that I was writing, that was based on my thesis would be the kind of cornerstone of my career, I would have laughed. I would have never thought. And it's funny because my husband, who is a Spanish man, you know, born and raised outside of the United States, from the very beginning, he told me this book was going to be a classic and that it was going to be my life's work. And I was like, "Ah, what is, <laughs> you're funny. This is going to be a little book. Nobody's going to care, but I'm going to be proud of it, but it's going to disappear. Nobody's going to be talking about it. And here I am literally 20 years later, um, still very much talking about it. And you asked how it has affected my other work. Hair Story literally set the stage for me to one, look at African-American culture in a much broader and more complex way, but it also taught me this idea that having conversations about race, identity, and culture that are based around kind of pedestrian, really basic things that anybody can connect with, like hair, like food, like family dynamics is the best way to engage a diverse population over an issue, more so than politics, legal issues, even you know issues of education or policy. But that like automatically is gonna bring contention and tension to the air and people are gonna be divided. Whereas if the conversation begins about hair, you can have, you can, you can, you can cover the same, you know, information, but in a different way, that's less threatening, and more engaging. Um, and really, I think, move the needle on race relations, and yeah, on race relations, and justice, and community that that you can't in in when you're looking at more big picture items. So having my first big book be about hair, really set the tone for how I would approach all of my other, um, books and projects about, you know, identity and race and things like that.
2: I mean, I think you're, you're spot on this idea that, you know, particularly, I mean, I won't even just say the black community, but certainly for this context of this book, like hair really connects these, these, as you said, the subject matters that may particularly, you know, as, as a scientist, I think sometimes we, um, you know, can get very bogged down in our methods or whatever, but we kind of pull it back out to something like hair or family, or, you know, as, as you, as you said, I think it's powerful. I had no idea. I should have known this, that we, uh, share, uh, Columbia also Columbia University also in common. <laughs> so, you know, and I just, i want to take you back to like roughly, uh, the year 2000. Uh, so I, I started, um, in 2002 uh, as a graduate student um, at Columbia. And um, when I, I I came in knowing exactly what I wanted to study, I wanted to study the impact of uh, hair product chemicals um, in black hair care products um, and their impact on, on women's health specifically, uh, looking at reproductive health. And um, as you said, the internet was just beginning. I mean, you know, tried to look up uh, the way back when version of PubMed or whatever it was back then. Um, and hardly anything I ran across like a handful of, of articles, one of which was um, a study of, you know, young children who um, as, as, as black people, you know, that there's sometimes hair day or whatever, like, you know, we sit down and get our hair done. So these are, these are little ones that were getting their hair done by their parents. And, um, but had developed breast and pubic care. And it turned out these products that were b- being being used that were commercially available on the shelf, thought to be safe, um, contained different forms of estrogen. And once that usage stopped, precocious puberty ceased and I was hooked, I was hooked. And yet I could not find anything, Lori, to like really look at this. No one was really asking these questions about the impact uh, of here, let alone the question of like, why, which is really the underpinnings of my work. The one place that I could find, and I was so excited. I don't even know where which bookstore I'd gone to, um, um, you know, in, in New York, but I ran across your book and and was like, someone has actually done so much of this work of understanding the social historical business. end because that was something as an epidemiologist, I hadn't even thought about, but just the money um, that's involved in this industry, right? Like I was, I was very, I was struck by this being a multi-billion-dollar industry, and and you know, kind of where do we go from here?
0: For so many people whose identity has been othered or marginalized, what is thought of as personal becomes political, and as Laurie and Tamir just described, what is considered acceptable hair is a perfect example of this. Now, in the next part of the conversation, Lori makes a really interesting connection between the importance of centering diversity and intersectionality within the beauty justice movement. So let's get back to the conversation.
2: What what do you think is kind of the way forward in changing our attitudes and beliefs around Black hair and beauty?
1: Well, it's interesting because I feel like I'm gonna go back to where I started from. The reason that I like preach the gospel of diversity, I'm gonna write that down because never said that but I'm preaching the gospel uh I'm at that age where if I don't write things down they just slip out of my head preach the gospel of diversity all right so I preach the gospel of diversity not because I think rainbows are pretty or because I think there's going to be a brown race that saves us all I preach the gospel of diversity because We become enlightened when we share information because intersectionality is real. Because when you bring forward the minds and brains of people of diverse backgrounds, you become. Better, faster problem solvers. That's what I mean by the gospel of diversity. I again, I'm not saying like, oh my god, your dinner is going to be so good, you'll be spicy. And if you break, no, I'm talking about on a much. I mean, sure, your dinner might be really good, you great potluck, but really, really, I'm talking about on a much bigger scale of how much more we could get accomplished if we worked together and brought our own unique backgrounds and our whole selves to the table. So that's what I mean. And that's been proven on, you know, Wall Street, Main Street, whatever you, all the streets have proven that, you know, Diverse teams are more productive. And again, that productive means more productive problem solving, which leads to a better bottom line if you're looking at it from a financial standpoint. But that can be extrapolated to, you know, how you have a better functioning neighborhood, how you have a better functioning, you know, family structure, how you have a better functioning school system is when you, you know, bring forth the the best of a diverse group. So, When we talk about like beauty justice, I feel like beauty justice comes from this continuously intersectional approach to problem solving, this continuously diverse, you know, bringing diverse um, voices to the table, because we only recognize that there is injustice when we have these diverse voices bringing their experiences to the table. And I think we're seeing that in so many different ways. Like we're seeing beauty justice, for example, in your work, like in what you're doing, you know, the fact that you're saying, hey, wait a minute, let's look at what's happening with these particular hair products targeted to these women. You can also look at people who are doing similar research on bleaching products, right? Like look at all of the research that is now being done about the um, chemical Ingredients in bleaching creams and lightening creams. What's what's the physical and emotional and medical cost to you know buying into that system? There's a lot of work being done now fighting colorism, and of course, then you have the kind of um, tangential fights that go along with that. It's not just a beauty fight; it is a healthcare. I mean. What bleaching creams do to the human body is criminal. And it's very visible from day four. I won't say day one because day one, oh, look, I'm so light, I'm so great. But, you know, by day four, your skin is so is so um, damaged that it's turned red and splotchy or whatever else. and you know internally horrible things are happening. And then you have a legal fight you know against these companies that are making these products that have been banned in some places and not in others. So I think the way forward is a continuation of a very visible, maybe social media campaign a very visible social campaign that is really around beauty and recognizing that you know all shades are pretty all shades are beautiful that kind of thing and then influenced by a scientific you know um or scientific or medical community getting involved and starting their own campaign or investigations and um, publicizing the damaging, um, the evidence that these particular beauty products, for example, what kind of damage they do to the human body, to the environment. And then, then it becomes an environmental issue, right? And then you have environmentalists complaining and protesting and bringing attention to what these chemicals are doing to our water supply, to our air supply, for example. And then, hopefully it gets to the business. There have been um, successful campaigns against certain companies, beauty companies, for their support of, for example, a product that creates uh, a company that sells lightning creams, for example. Um, You know, a boycott uh, protest or something like that. And then like it kind of comes full circle and that's when you get justice. So I really believe that the way forward is an intersectional approach to these issues because like my only like, not even problem, but my only, let's see, concern about labeling something beauty justice is that people will not realize that it has so many facets to it. If they hear beauty justice, it's like, oh, you mean you can't afford your makeup and she can or something like that, as opposed to the truly, Um, multifaceted impact that things like makeups and hair products um, and, you know, diet culture. I mean, that's all comes in the realm of of beauty justice, in my opinion. If we put all these things under one big umbrella and we all do our part, then we can see beauty justice that really spreads across all of these different um, components of women's body and how they are judged and how they were used and how they are abused um, and how they were valued. So yeah, that's what I think is the, the way forward.
2: That's really powerful. I, I, um I really resonate with the point that you're making around, you know, how do we, how do we recognize or know when we've kind of reached, you know, equity, like when mm-hmm. we have you know, justice has been served essentially. And um, and just understanding the importance of a a multi-pronged approach that also recognizes the the power of this kind of multiple movements happening at once that really speak holistically about our bodies. We're not just our hair or just the size of our body or just Mm -hmm. the color of our skin. We're, we're, you know, it's intersectional. It's all of these things and um, and more. And so um, I, I love that. I am also recognizing that we're running out of time. And um, is there anything else you wanted to make sure that our listeners hear about? I feel like we too often make
1: these conversations about women when men, particularly Black men, have been subjected to the same damaging um, messaging about the inadequacy, ugliness, inappropriateness of our hair such that they too have changed their behaviors and grooming habits based on this false belief that there is something inherently wrong with their hair. These systems that taught us and that inf- reinforced the idea that we can't get ahead, that we aren't appropriate for public viewing, that we aren't attractive. That is also true for men. I just want that to be in the backs of people's minds as they're thinking about these issues of beauty justice, because men are also, it's not even susceptible, men are also reeling with and having to unpack what it means to be okay with their bodies the way they were born it's it's heartbreaking and it's even more heartbreaking because we just don't expect that we don't realize that those conversations are happening but why wouldn't they be happening black men have black mothers who had black mothers who had black fathers who were you know raised from the same white supremacist nation right so and going globally the colonialism that happened that taught people the world over that if they were too dark, they weren't worthy. It's just something that we need to be aware that it's not just a women's issue.
2: It's very powerful. Um, In My my little anecdotal story is um, in doing my research, I had to do focus groups. And that very topic came up now almost 20 years ago, where we're interviewing all of these women. And the question was, uh, by the the men, the 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 husbands and sons of, you know these individuals. Um, why aren't you interviewing us? Don't you want to know our stories? And, you know, as the student at the time, like, actually, I mean, I, I would love to know your story. I would, but I you know, this is about women. this is not, you know, and not recognizing the importance of um, being inclusive. And also um, the, just gender as, a you know, like more holistically, we've done a, a fairly terrible job of understanding, um, you know, the, the, the role of gender and playing out of, you know, this beauty, justice, environmental exposure issue. So um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that, um, that encouragement to, you know, not only push forward with the work that all of us are doing, but to really be more inclusive in that work.
1: It's just something that we need to be aware of, that it's not just a women's issue. So,
2: absolutely, it's, it's not. And I am grateful that I'm starting to see the research in this area uh, start to take hold and others stepping up to the plate to start to look at this um, and its importance and relevance to, to health uh, broadly within the other half of our yeah. population. So, but no, I, I, you know, again, I'm so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so much, and have a You're good welcome. evening. And I Thank will you. see you later.
0: Lori demonstrated that speaking our truths through telling stories, especially about the things that cut across different communities and cultures, is an important part of healing and justice work. She also highlighted that diversity is crucial. This. Conversation raised some important questions like, how do the limited narratives around diversity and the limited representation of different identities in mainstream culture impact our ability to imagine a more just and equitable future of beauty for everyone? One thing is clear, the path forward will require an intersectional approach and recognition of the ways that the multiple social identities that we inhabit impact our experience of injustice. It's going to take folks from diverse disciplines and backgrounds working together to achieve inclusive and lasting beauty justice. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode of Beauty Plus Justice. We hope that Lori's words reminded you of the importance of your unique story and identity. Be well and join us next time as we dive into the cost of beauty and justice with Tamir Jokespore from The Economist. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Heycoop, with assistance from Okania Chaudhry-Polino. We received funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.